Let's open our Bible to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 19. So we did the first 10 chapters of Acts. We're going to leave Acts. I wasn't planning on going through the entire book. I want to go to Luke chapter 19 and look at the parable of the Minas. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. It's right where I was with the children. Luke 19, 11. When Jesus gives this parable, he is on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. So this parable is given at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. When he gives the people of Israel this parable, he has just passed through Jericho. And he is drawing near to Jerusalem. So let's read Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. Now, as we read this, Jesus is giving this parable, and he's talking about minas, and we don't know what minas are, but I'll tell you what a mina is. But that's not the point. The point is just what I told the children. God gives us, he entrusts to us his gifts. And he entrusts those gifts to us that we would take them and use them to bring an increase of his glory. So as we read this parable and we talk about these things today, we're talking about living faithful, not living safe. Do you get it? There's a difference between living faithful and living safe. God never calls us to live safe God calls us to live faithful. And so I want you to think about this parable and how it applies to your life. And so we sometimes read the Bible and we read these parables and we think, well, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a servant of a king. I'm, I'm you know, I'm me. But, but we are servants of the king. It's like Bob Dylan said, everybody's going to serve somebody. Not a question of whether you're going to serve somebody. The question is, who are you going to serve? You're either going to serve God or you're going to serve the devil. You're either going to serve God or you're going to serve yourself. And if you're serving yourself, you're serving the devil. Because the devil doesn't care who you serve as long as you're not serving God. And so it's important for us to hear the words of Jesus and understand how they apply to our lives, to our work, to our vocations, to our families, to our relationships. It applies in every way. Because what God has given to us in Christ is to be used in every way and in every area of our life, every day of our life. Okay? Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, Your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you are faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept, put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man. 
You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming it might be collected with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to every one who, who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. That is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. Lord, we ask that you would open up the heart, and open up the mind, open the eyes of our understanding and teach us by your Holy Spirit. Equip us to live faithful lives, God, trusting you even when what you call us to do may seem unsafe. Father, help us to be faithful servants who bring an increase of Christ in all that we do, in all that we are that you would be glorified in your church. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's jump right in so we can get through these verses. So here in verse 11, it says, Now as they'd heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So here's the picture. Jesus, by this time, has gone through three years of earthly ministry. And Jesus has healed the sick. He's raised the dead. He's, he's multiplied loaves and fishes on more than one occasion. So... The people of Israel have heard, they know who Jesus is, they know what Jesus has done, they know the Old Testament scriptures, and so this was John's point when he sent his disciples from prison. John's in prison, he says, go to Jesus and ask him, are you the one we've been looking for? And the answer of Jesus was not yes or no, the answer of Jesus was, you go and tell John that the lame are healed. The blind are healed, the deaf are healed, and the gospel has been preached to the poor. And why did Jesus say that? Because that's what the Old Testament prophets prophesied. That's what Isaiah said. When Jesus, when the Messiah comes, this is what the Messiah will do. He'll heal the blind. And when Jesus healed the blind man, this is what the people said. Never before have we seen a miracle like this. When Jesus went to the synagogue, immediately after he came out of the wilderness, he reads the scroll of Isaiah, and he says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's in Luke chapter 4. Jesus is the Messiah. He is fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. And so, now after... Over three years of Jesus fulfilling the scriptures and doing these signs and wonders, he is now making his way to Jerusalem. It is the Passover. It is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And every Jewish male is commanded to appear before the Lord in Jerusalem. This is what God gave to, to Israel in the law. It's recorded in Leviticus. And this was one of the feasts where every man was commanded to appear before the Lord. This means that at the Passover, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Jerusalem, the population of Jerusalem would swell because Jews from all over the known world were coming to Jerusalem to keep the feast in obedience to the Lord. Now Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's passed through Jericho and he's on his way. And the throngs of people, the multitudes are following him. And they are sure that Jesus is the Messiah. And he is. And they are sure that Jesus is going to march into Jerusalem 
overthrow the Roman army and set up the kingdom of Israel. They were just positive that's what he was going to do. And this is what is said here. Because he was near Jerusalem, because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. God's kingdom is present. Do you know that church right now? God's kingdom is here. It's present. And God's kingdom is coming. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. Pray this way. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom is present and God's kingdom is coming. It is never ending. It is ever increasing in its government and peace. God's kingdom is right now filling the earth. Jesus had passed through Jericho, drawing near to Jerusalem. The Jews were expecting Jesus to usher in the physical, natural kingdom of God, to overthrow the Romans and to reestablish the kingdom of Israel and its glory. In short, they were looking for a natural kingdom with a natural Savior, bringing a natural salvation. They were willfully blind and willfully deaf to the spiritual and eternal nature of God's kingdom and the salvation that Jesus would indeed usher in. Jesus has ushered in a spiritual kingdom that is filling the natural world. We hear this word spiritual and we think it's not real, it's invisible, it can't be seen. No, the spiritual kingdom of God is real and it is filling this natural world. World, The very fact that we are in this room today talking about it is testimony of a real kingdom filling this real world. Because that message of Jesus left Jerusalem on that day of Pentecost and it has traveled many times around this world to every nation, to every peoples of this earth and his kingdom is filling this earth. And it will continue to fill this earth until the knowledge of the glory of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the Old Testament prophet who proclaimed that truth and that reality. The increase of its government and peace will have no end. And with the coming of Jesus... With the birth of that baby came the never-ending, ever-increasing kingdom of God. Listen to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. We read this at Christmas time. We think this is a Christmas scripture. This is not a Christmas scripture. This is the scripture. There's no such thing as a Christmas scripture. This is the promise of God. For unto us, written... 700 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon Did you catch that? There will be no end of the increase. That means it's not going to start and going to stop for a couple of thousand years and then start again after something monumental happens. No, of the increase, there will be no end. That means since the time Jesus was born and laid in that manger, the increase of God's government and peace has not stopped. And it will never stop. There will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is not what man's going to do. This is what God has promised he is doing. The kingdom has come, it will continue to come until it fills and subdues the whole earth. It has increased and it will continue to increase. And the increase of its government and peace has no end. This is the promise of God given from the beginning of time. This is why God told Adam and Eve, go forth Subdue the earth, be fruitful, and multiply. Take dominion of the earth, 
be fruitful and multiply. Why? Because God knew that his kingdom would never stop increasing. It was never meant to, and it never will. This was not the kingdom Israel was looking for. You understand this. They were following Jesus. They were so excited about Jesus the Messiah, but they did not understand the nature of the kingdom that Jesus had brought in. The kingdom of God that was ushered in with the birth of Jesus was not the kingdom Israel was looking for. It was a much, much greater kingdom. Do you understand that? What Israel was looking for was so far less than what God actually was doing. There is no other kingdom, there is no other government or peace that we should be seeking. We are to seek His kingdom, His government, and His peace that is ever increasing and never ending. Verse 12, Therefore he said a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he gives them this parable because he knows what their expectation is. He knows their expectation is wrong. So he's going to use a parable to teach them. A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Jesus went to his father and he received the kingdom. He didn't just receive a kingdom. He received the kingdom. And his return is imminent. Now there's actually a dual reference here. If we knew our history, and oftentimes we do not, we would know that the Jews would have heard that very statement there, a certain nobleman went into a far country to to receive a kingdom for himself. Those Jews, hearing those words of Jesus, would have immediately thought of one of their former rulers by the name of Herod Archelaus. Herod Archelaus, after the death of his father, Herod the Great, Those names sound familiar. Herod the Great was the guy who encountered the wise men looking for the baby who was born. And Herod says, oh yeah, that king. Oh, I want to go worship him too. When you find him, come tell me where he is so I can go worship him. That's the Herod who had all the babies murdered from two years old and beneath trying to murder this child king because he didn't want that king to grow up and take his kingdom. That was Herod the Great. He died, and this Herod Archelaus is the son of Herod the Great. And when Herod the Great died, at just a few months before his death, he changed his will and he left everything to this son, Archelaus. This was around 4 or 6 B.C., But Archelaus had to go to Rome to get the blessing of the Caesar before he could receive his kingdom. And when Joseph and Mary come out of Egypt with the baby Jesus, this is Herod Archelaus. This is the guy that they try to avoid who has become the king or the Herod over Judea and Samaria and Edom. But before Herod Archelaus went to Rome to receive his kingdom, before he became king, he set up a golden eagle above the temple, which was considered a blasphemous act. And there were two rabbis and their 40 students who took it upon themselves to go to the temple and tear down that golden eagle and destroy it because it was blasphemous. Well, guess what Herod Archelaus didn't like? He didn't like that someone took his golden eagle down without his permission. So he gathered those two teachers and those 40 students. He arrested them and he had them systematically sacrificed because of their disobedience and their sin against him because after all, he had put himself in the place of God. So as a result of that, there was an uprising. He attempted to send some soldiers to try to peacefully deal with it. 
But when they sent the soldiers to the temple compound, because it was at the time of the Passover, all this in the days of Herod Archelaus is happening at the time of the Passover, the very time Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And Jesus on purpose starts his parable this way because he wants to call to remembrance to those Jews the story of Archelaus, the ruler that they had rejected. And Archelaus, when he finds out that he sends a peaceful delegation to try to smooth this thing over, that the Jews who are gathered there for the Passover actually take his soldiers outside and they stone them and kill them, well, Herod Archelaus sends his army into the temple compound and slaughters 3,000 people. And he's not the king yet. He just does this on his own. Then he, goes to Jerusalem, then he goes to Rome and he gets the blessing of the Caesar and he comes back king. And his people hate him. They despise him. They reject him. And you can see why. He was a very cruel leader. Archelaus was eventually deposed by Rome and had been long removed from power by the time Jesus was making his journey to Jerusalem. But Archelaus was still known and still hated by the Jews. And Jesus knew the nation was on the verge of rejecting him the same way they had rejected Archelaus. The difference is this. Archelaus deserved their hatred and rejection, but Jesus did not. But they would treat Jesus even worse than they treated Herod Archelaus. Then in verse 13, Jesus says, So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come. Occupy until I come. What it literally means is do business until I come. We have all received from our king, and we will all give an accounting of how we have carried out his business. The nobleman called ten of his servants and gave them each a mina. A mina, a Hebrew mina, was equivalent to about 100 days wages, or three months of wages. And this is what he gave to each of his servants, was three months, or 100 days wages. And he commanded them, do business Till I come. And that command was to be busy about the business of the king and his kingdom, to trade and negotiate with the resources given them until he returned. They were each given a mina with the expectation that each would increase it. This was a test for his servants. The test was in faithfully doing the business of the king. This reveals the king's expectation that his servants diligently and faithfully carry out his business until his return. Are you getting the picture? The measure of their faithfulness was in the increase of what was produced. The test measured what each servant did with what had been entrusted to him. This was an indictment on Israel and their rejection of their Messiah. God had entrusted to them the law and the prophets and all the writings, and he had sent even his son, but they rejected all. This is an exhortation and a warning for all of God's people. It is an exhortation and a warning for us here today. We have all been given the holy scriptures. We have all been made known. It's been revealed to us that God has sent his son we are given the same command to do the business of the kingdom until the king returns. We are not here to do our own business for our own glory or to please ourselves or to please others. We are here at the pleasure of the king to do the business of the king for the glory of the king. And this is why the scripture exhorts us to do all we do as unto the Lord. Whatever you do, whatever your vocation, whatever your calling is, we are to do all that we do to the glory of God. We are to do it as unto the Lord. Doing the king's business is meant to be a joyful endeavor, not a drudgery. This is really important. If you're slogging through life trying to serve 
the Lord because you don't want to go to hell, I can tell you right now, you might as well stop because you're not going to make it. You won't make it to the end. If your motivation is trying to avoid hell, you will wear yourself out and God will not let you persevere to the end because that's not the motivation we are to have. The motivation we are to have is not trying to avoid hell. It's not fear of hell. It's love for our God. And if love for our God, if love for our King does not motivate us, then we don't have the right motivation. And if it is love for our King that is motivating us, we will find His joy and we will experience His joy. We will only know that joy as we give ourselves fully to the work of the King. We experience His joy as we fully use and expend all the things, all the gifts, all the life that He has seen fit to leave in our care. We will never know His joy by hiding what He has entrusted to us, even if we believe it is the safe thing to do. Verse 14 But the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. They really did that with Archelaus. They sent a delegation to Rome and they told Caesar, we don't want this guy to rule over us. And this was the attitude of the nations, of the nation of Israel toward Jesus, their Messiah. This is the attitude of humanity toward God. We see this in the garden when Adam took the fruit from Eve, and they disobeyed God, and they they ate from the forbidden tree. That was man saying, God, we don't want you to rule over us. I want to do my own thing, and I think I know better than you do. And God says, okay, let's see how that works out for you. The rejection of God and his Christ is the root cause of all man's problems. It's the root cause of all of my problems, the root cause of all of your problems. There is a parallel here between Archelaus and Jesus. Archelaus earned the hatred and the rejection of the Jews. Jesus had done nothing to warrant that hatred or their rejection. Jesus knew that the same sentiment the Jews had for Archelaus, they had for him, though for very different reasons. As they had rejected that Jewish leader, they would reject this Jewish leader, Jesus, their Messiah. And so the nation did reject him and cried out, crucify him, crucify him. There's also a contrast here. Archelaus went to Rome to get a regional kingdom from Caesar. Jesus went to his father to get the kingdom that rules over all creation. Archelaus is dead and king of nothing. Jesus is alive and he rules right now all things. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He rules over all creation. And so it was, verse 15, when he had returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded these servants to, come, to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. There is a day of reckoning. There is a day of judgment that is coming to all men. As believers, we will not be judged for our sin. I want you to understand this. But we will be judged for our works. Christ has already been judged for the sins of every believer. We will be judged for the life we are given to live in Jesus Christ. And like the servants who received the mina, God will judge what we did with that life that we received by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-11, through 11, Paul writes, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God. In other words, Paul says, but we are confident. Because God knows us. And he says, I trust that we are also well known in your conscience. And he says, I trust that you know us as well. 
that our motivation and our aim is to honor and to glorify God. For all who are in Christ, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, there will be no judgment for sin, but for the works done in Christ. For the believers, Christ has taken our judgment for sin and God's wrath in our stead. Jesus paid the debt we could not pay. He took the wrath that we deserved upon himself. In the cross of Christ, the wrath of God was satisfied on behalf of his people We will be judged and rewarded accordingly for our enduring work tested by fire done through faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay that has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will be will become clear for the day, that is the day of judgment, will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." What Paul is writing there is that our works, our lives will be tested by fire. And what we have done by faith in Christ will endure like gold, silver, and precious stones. But what we have done not in faith and for ourselves or for any other reason is like wood, hay, and stubble. And the fire will burn it up and consume it. And we will suffer loss. But we will be saved So we see that the measure of our reward may be uncertain, but the measure of God's love for us in Jesus Christ is not. Our life and our salvation is secured by God's immeasurable love for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus has saved us. We have not saved ourselves. The work we are trusting in is not our own, but the finished work of Christ in the cross. Our work for the king is not for our salvation. Our work for the king is a result of our salvation. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It is the gift of God. It is not of works so that no one can boast about what they have done. Our only boast is in what Christ has done for us. Doing the business of the king should provide for us a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. We have rewards that we can look forward to in this life and the next. The very fact that you are called a servant of the king should give us reason to rejoice. Because if we are servants of the king, that means we belong to the king. Which means we should take heart and we should be joyful that he has chosen us to be his servants. Well, what about those who are outside of Christ, whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life? They will be justly judged for their works, good or bad. Any work done outside of Christ is sin. Let me say that again. If you think morality will save you, if you think good works will save you, if you think adding some good works here and there throughout your life is going to get you brownie points with God, you are extremely mistaken. The only thing that will save you is faith in Jesus Christ. There is no merit, there is no work that we can do that earns us anything with God. Whatever we receive from God, we receive because of His grace. You reap what you sow, The world uses the term karma. There's no such thing as karma. There is such a thing as reaping and sowing. The Bible says you sow to the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. If we think we're going to do some good things and then God's going to give us good in return, if we're not trusting in the only work that makes any difference, and that is the work of Jesus on the cross, our best work on our best day, our most moral good 
work is sin in the eyes of God because we're trusting in ourselves instead of trusting in Jesus. We're trusting in our works instead of trusting in the work of Christ on the cross. And if we can save ourselves by our own works, then why did Jesus die on the cross? Jesus is the only one who could ever walk in, in perfection The perfection God demands is not just outwardly, it's inwardly. It's a perfection we cannot live up to. We're not meant to live up to it. God set the standard so high on purpose that we could never meet it. He did that on purpose so that we would recognize our desperate state and cry out to the only one who can save us, who is Jesus. If you are not trusting in him, you are trusting in yourself and you are dead in your sin. Our self-saving morality is sin in the eyes of God for any person not trusting in Jesus. The only way to know your name is written in the Lamb's book of life is to put your trust in the finished work of Christ. It is to trust that your salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other way by which we can be saved. The business we are doing till he comes is preaching the gospel and making disciples. We are to do that in whatever vocation we choose or calling we receive. Men will not be saved apart from the gospel. Therefore, we must do our work well. Then it says the first came to the master and said, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he says to him, well done, good servant, because you were faithful and very little. Have authority over ten cities. And likewise, a second came and says, your mina has earned five minas. He's likewise, you have authority over five cities. So I want you to think about this. The nobleman, the king, gave each servant a mina, approximately three months' wages. The first servant took those 100 days of wages and turned it into a thousand day's wages, about two and a half years. And as a result, what did the king give to him? He says, I give to you authority over ten cities. What do you think ten cities was valued at? We can't calculate it. In other words, it's an incalculable amount. What the king gave in return, in reward for the faithfulness of the servant cannot be calculated. The grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ will infinitely outweigh our greatest achievements and our greatest afflictions in this life. Whatever the Lord gives to us is given by the King that we would increase it for His glory. In the parable, each servant is given a mina. And the one we see here, the first one that comes, turns it into ten. And he's given ten cities for his tenfold increase. And you notice that when the servant comes, he's not confused about who the mina belongs to. It belongs to the master. What God entrusts to us is not ultimately ours. Everything given to us by God belongs to God. And one day we will give an accounting of all that is his. However much we increase, what God gives us, the reward we have in Christ is infinitely greater. The servant turned one mina into ten, and he's given ten cities. And one thing that this parable demonstrates is that the reward we have in Christ is infinitely greater than anything we could achieve in this life. The reward will always be greater than what could possibly be justified through our own efforts. That servant did not earn ten cities worth. He was given ten cities by the grace of his king. We will never earn the rewards that God will give to us in Christ one day. They will be given to us because of his grace, not because we earn them. This is why I believe in the book of Revelation, when you see the elders before the throne, it says they cast their crowns before the throne of God. And that day when we see him, we will know that we earned nothing. We deserve nothing. But all that has been given to us, all that we have in Christ, we have by the grace of God and only 
by the grace of God. Verses 20 through 23, it says, Then another came, and he says, Master, here's your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere, a strict man. You collect what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your own mouth, this is what the king says, Out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. If the, in other words, if that's who you think I am, then that's how I'm going to judge you. If that's who you think I am and that's how you think I will judge you, then that's exactly how I'm going to judge you. He says, you knew that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? Fear of man is the enemy of faithfulness. This is why we're having problems in the church today. We fear man more than we fear God. Fear of man is the enemy of faithfulness. We see that faithfulness is not just keeping safe what is entrusted to us. Faithfulness is taking what is entrusted and increasing it for the glory of the king. The servant feared because he did not truly know his master. He feared man and what man might do to him instead of fearing God and being faithful with the thing that was entrusted to him. Fear kept the servant from taking what was entrusted to him and using it to bring increase for his master. Fear keeps us thinking that hiding our mina is the safest thing to do. We hide things to keep them safe. That is a lie that we tell ourselves. There is nothing safe about hiding what God has given to us. Everything God gives us is a gift, and I mean everything. God gives us easy and hard things, sweet and bitter things. If we think hiding all the hard and the bitter things is safe, we deceive ourselves. God does not allow us to go through anything, even when it is the result of our sin, that he does not desire to take and use for his glory. When we hide those things in an attempt to protect our name, we rob God of the glory that is due his name. This servant who is called wicked here hid what was entrusted to him to protect himself. Because his fear was, if I lose it, my master's going to get me. And the master said, if you really thought I was that type of person, then you should have been even more motivated to take it out of your handkerchief, take it out of hiding and put it somewhere where there could at least be some increase. This is Jesus' point when he says, at the beginning of his earthly ministry, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. If salt loses its flavor, it's good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled upon. No one lights a light and then hides it under a bushel basket. You light a light so that your light can be seen. Like this servant who did not know his master, when we do not know God as he has revealed himself to us in the scripture and in his son, our misconceptions will dictate how we live our life. Our view of God will determine whether we live for his glory or for our own. Our view of God will determine whether we live faithfully or fearfully. Our view of God will determine whether we are living to protect our own interest like the wicked servant or whether we are living to serve God's interest. Our view of God will also determine whether we do all that we do with joy or whether it is drudgery. And then the king says, To those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten. And here in parentheses, the people standing by says to the king, but they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. In other words, he's already got ten. Why are you taking the one from the guy, leaving him nothing and giving it to the guy who's got ten already? Why don't you give it to one of these other persons who has less? For I say to you, 
These are the words of Jesus, for I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Faithfulness is not concerned with fairness. This is when the culture cries out, that's not fair. How many times have you heard that? How many times do you read that? How many times do you hear that cry being echoed throughout the culture? That's not fair. It's not fair for that man to make that much money. It's not fair for that company to become that big. It's not fair. It's not, everything is not fair. It's all about fairness. It's not fair to take from those who have not and give to those who have. That's why we're trying to make this country a socialist country because we somehow think it's fair to take from those who have to give to those who have not. There's nothing fair about that. That's just plain sin is what that is. In fact, Jesus demonstrates for us here that it's absolutely fair if the reason someone does not have is because they refuse to be faithful. And that's why that servant is called wicked. He refused to be faithful. In our culture today, we are so sinfully entrapped by the idea of fairness that we completely ignore faithfulness. We promote fairness at the expense of holding men accountable in the area of faithfulness. As long as we give the perception of fairness, faithfulness does not matter. In fact, requiring faithfulness and commitment and sacrifice is considered less than fair in today's culture. After all, we claim to be free, but we have no idea what true freedom really is. Jesus came to set us free, and in that liberty, we are now free to do what? To faithfully pursue his virtue, his character, and his glory. That pursuit will bring us joy if we are faithful. In the liberty we have been given in Christ, we are free to faithfully seek the increase of Christ in all that he has entrusted to us. It is the increase of Christ, not the increase of ourselves, that we should be seeking. We think freedom is our ability, our license to do whatever we want. That's not freedom. That's called sin. And then in verse 27, at the end of this parable, Jesus says, Bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. And we all take a collective gasp of air. Because after all, surely Jesus didn't say this. Well, actually, Jesus did say this. Because this is the fate of those who willfully reject Christ, and we should never forget that. Listen to these sobering words recorded for us in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. John says, Then I saw a great white throne in him who sat on it, whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There are some who say it's not fair that God would send anyone to hell. They are like that wicked servant who hid his mina in a handkerchief. They do not know God and they do not know man. They have no concept of justice righteousness or holiness. They have no concept of sin or salvation or the price that is associated with each one of those. God is more than fair. God is gracious. If God gave us what was fair, we would all burn in hell. And that's just the plain truth. Thankfully, God did not give us what was fair. He gave us grace in Jesus Christ. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only hope the world has. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. And do not be ashamed to tell people. Because their life depends on it. Amen. Let's prepare ourselves to come to the table. This table reminds us of the good news, of the hope that we have in Jesus. And if you're not trusting Jesus, trust in Jesus. Come to Jesus and receive the life that he will give you by grace through faith. Christian, come to the table. Come to Jesus. Let's stand. All who trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation are called new creations. Scripture teaches us, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. In Christ, our identity is not in who we were, but in who we now are in him. We are called children of God, but we are also called servants. More accurately, that word is slave. We are slaves of God. We are to present our members as slaves of righteousness, the Bible teaches. We are to serve the king. Our life is not our own. We have been bought with a price, with the precious blood of Christ. That is, an un- that is unpopular today. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Everybody wants the blessing of God, but nobody wants to walk in obedience to him. Everybody thinks freedom is doing whatever I want, when I want, and how I want, but that is not freedom. The Bible calls that sin. Jesus came to set us free from sin so that we could live in his liberty. Now, in our liberty in Christ, we are free to be obedient to him, free to serve him, free to do the business of our king and his kingdom, free to abandon our life to him for his glory. It is in our faithful service to our king that we find and enter into our greatest joy, a joy the Bible describes as unspeakable and full of glory. Don't hide what God has given you. Don't live safe out of fear. Living safe and hiding what God has entrusted to you will cost you just like it cost the wicked servant in the parable. Safety is an illusion the world wants us to believe. There is no safety outside of Christ. Living safe will cost us. What you have will be taken from you. Don't live safe. Live faithful. Live faithful even when it's dangerous. Live faithful even when it means risking pain and suffering and hurt to yourself. Live faithful for his glory. Live faithful You will be rewarded infinitely more than anything you could ask or even think. God is faithful and he calls us to be the same. Be faithful. Amen.